Knowledge is power, and we are all about empowering the mamas of the world. In each episode, we will unravel and interpret the latest research and evidence-based practices for pregnancy, postpartum, and motherhood. As mums and researchers ourselves, we have experienced firsthand the overwhelming complexity of information, myths, and those classic old wives' tales. I'm Dr. Renee White, and this is The Science of Motherhood. Hello, and welcome to episode 64 of The Science of Motherhood. Thank you so much for joining me. My name is Dr. Renee White. I'm the host of this podcast. And when I'm not hosting this and talking to extremely interesting and thought-provoking leaders in their field, I am a postpartum doula at Fill Your Cup, which is a very exciting and such a rewarding job. I tell you what, there is nothing better than looking after mamas and their babies. And that's what we do. Some people say, oh my goodness, what do you do for a day job? And I'm like, I just hold babies and I <laughs> I look after mums. I cook for them. I tidy up around their house. I hold their babies while they go have a nice hot shower. And typically the response is, oh my goodness, I would have loved to have someone like you when I had my baby. Because motherhood is tough. It is so, so hard and we were not meant to do this alone. And so get yourselves a postpartum doula if you are pregnant or if you've just had a baby or even if you had a baby two years ago. We say postpartum is for life. If you would love to have someone in your house sending you a menu, getting you to choose from delicious, nourishing, postpartum-specific meals to replete all of those lost micronutrients, and we hear this from the international bestseller book um, by Dr. Oscar Serilak, The Postnatal Depletion, that there are mothers out there who are depleted for like 10 years. They have never taken the opportunity to fully physically, mentally, emotionally recover from the birth of their babies and child rearing. Like it is just crazy. And we know from the research that, you know, those first 40 days after you've had your baby, you need to be as horizontal as possible, getting a like a ton of rest. Your body has been through a marathon of pregnancy and, you know, depending on what your birth looked like, either another marathon or a sprint. And so your body needs time to heal. Add in some sleep deprivation, no time to cook, let me assure you from someone who has tried it, Tim Tams and toast are not a new mama's diet. <laughs> it does not work. So if you want to be treated like a queen and get repleted and kick that postnatal depletion to the curb, head over to our website, ifillyourcup.com and you can check out how we can support you. We have got a beautiful village of doulas across Australia, Melbourne, Hobart, Sydney, and Brisbane now, and we can help plan your best postpartum, and we can take you from surviving to thriving. No joke. So we are going to go all the way back to the beginning before people become mums, (laughs) to conception. And today's guest, as I said at the beginning, she is doing a two-part series with us, Dr. Manuela Toledo. She's the medical director of TAS IVF and she is the only what they call a CREI, a Certificate in Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility Specialists in Tasmania. She is just gold. (laughs) This woman knows everything about IVF. I throw a question at her and it's just bang, straight at it. And so I guess the, the unique thing about Manuela's approach to fertility patients is that she has a really holistic view and you hear this time and time again in the interview. Not only is she applying, I guess, 
her scientific and medical knowledge and her extensive experience in fertility and genetics to this reproductive medicine. But she also looks at it from, I guess, lifestyle factors and nutrition and stress. All of these things play a role in fertility. And we we talk about that quite in depth in this particular episode. So in the previous episode, we were looking at myths and misconceptions about IVF, things like is IVF only for infertile couples or can you do IVF at any stage or weight and lifestyle factors have no impact on IVF results, fact or fiction. So we go into, I guess, the depths of those questions. And in today's episode, we are going to deep dive into the science. What is IVF? What happens at each of these stages? What can you expect during your IVF journey? What plays a role in, I guess, what's the critical steps and why are they critical? Are there any potential side effects that are going to go on? And what can you do to increase your chances of IVF success? So Manuela beautifully walks us through each of those things and talks about how you can maximise each one of those steps to hopefully come out with the positive outcome of coming home with a baby. So... Without further ado, here is, again, the lovely, the very knowledgeable Dr. Manuela Toledo. Hello and welcome back to the podcast, Dr. Manuela Toledo. How are you today? I'm very well, Renee. Thank you. I'm very excited to be back. I I really appreciate your time and your questions last time was super interesting. So um, let's do it all again. Awesome. Thank you so much. So for all those playing at home, this is part two. So if you haven't heard part one, please pause and go back to the other episode where Manuela and I (laughs) talked at quite length about the myths and misconceptions about IVF because they are a lot out there. And as we said in that episode, we were all about kind of sifting through the fluff on the internet and setting the record straight between fact and fiction when it came to IVF. And we alluded to, in that episode, that we were going to take a really deep dive into the science. We were going to get our nerd on in this episode because (laughs) at heart we are both scientists and medical clinicians in, in your case, Manuela. So today I thought it would be really useful to have you walk us through, I guess, the science of IVF. What is IVF? How did it kind of come about? And then at each stage of the process, what would a patient expect? And then why do you do what you do? And how does that kind of impact the overall, I guess, experience of the patient, but also the outcome of IVF. So let's start at the beginning. For all let's those start who right are, at the beginning. Right yeah. at the beginning. So Absolutely. It, explain so, what is IVF and, and how do people kind of get involved into that? So, Renee, IVF is in vitro fertilisation, as most of our listeners will know. And what it really means is that we're bringing the egg and the sperm together outside of the body. That's it in a nutshell. Now, because this is happening outside of the body, it needs to be done in a laboratory and it needs to be done in a lab that is fully equipped and it needs to be done in a lab that is up-to-date IVF technology. Mm-hmm. And we talked in the last episode about how the magic happens in the lab and that your chance of success with IVF to a large extent rests with what's going on in the lab. And we also talked a little bit about IVF technology being very expensive, Mm -hmm. which unfortunately is the reason that IVF itself is also expensive. But as the technology in the lab improves, so do the pregnancy rates. So, yes, it's getting more expensive, but the pregnancy rates are also increasing, which hopefully means for the majority of our patients that they won't have to spend a lot of time doing IVF because they're getting pregnant more quickly than they would have five or ten years ago. Mm. But coming right back to the beginning, 
We want to get a woman's eggs, but we don't want the immature eggs. There right. is a kind of IVF called IVM or in vitro maturation where we harvest immature eggs, but that's really a very different technology. It's still in its infancy. We're really not at a point yet where we can easily clinically ap- apply it. Mm-hmm. So at the moment, we're really trying to get a woman's mature eggs. And to do that, she would ring us at the beginning of her cycle and we would start on 10 days of injections of FSH or follicle-stimulating hormone to really try and encourage the ovaries to make ideally between 5 and 12 mature eggs. Now, the number, I'm, I hate quoting numbers because mm. there's so much out there on social media with patients comparing numbers, but we know that if you have between 5 to 12 eggs, that seems to be a sweet spot. That okay. seems to be a really good range for for your chance of pregnancy in that particular IVF cycle. But I have patients who get one or two eggs and we get a baby. We have patients who have more than 15 eggs and they don't get a baby quickly. So it's not all about numbers. It's ultimately all about the quality. And I really use this opportunity to just say, again, it is quality over quantity. I'd much rather a healthy, non-smoking patient who has five mature eggs in my lab as opposed to an unhealthy patient who smokes who got 20 eggs, but we know straight away that they're just probably going to be too fragile and they may not fertilise well. And that comes back to a lot of the lifestyle factors that we also spoke about in in the previous episode. Mm. So once a woman has been on 10 days on average of hormone injections, she would have come in and had an ultrasound with me. And I know, Renee, you can see behind me in my office my little ultrasound machine none of us gynecologists and IVF specialists could live without their ultrasound machine it gives us so much information and they would have an internal vaginal ultrasound we do have some women who have issues having internal examinations for a variety of reasons and so there's always the option of having an abdominal scan too but we do prefer the transvaginal or internal ultrasounds we just see so much more of your little ovaries right once we have determined that the eggs in the follicles look mature and I really should say it's the follicles that we're assessing the little bags of fluids in the ovary that the eggs swim in because Mm -hmm. the eggs themselves are really quite microscopic if you looked at a mature egg with a naked eye, it would be like a speck on the end of a needle. Right. So you really have to know what you're looking at to even maybe be aware that it's there. And so you don't see the eggs until the day of egg retrieval, also known as ovum pickup, egg collection. There's a variety of names for it. And that is done usually under sedation via transvaginal or internal ultrasound with a little needle guide attached and that little needle guide goes into each ovary and sucks out the mature eggs. And most women tolerate that very well. It's a sort of walk-in, walk-out procedure. I have some patients who, again, for a variety of reasons, want to be awake Mm -hmm. during the egg retrieval and if, if they're in the right frame of mind, that works really well. And very occasionally we'll have a patient who maybe due to her particular medical history or her anatomy it's better if she's under quite deep sedation or even a general anesthetic but the majority of patients would have very mild twilight sedation and be awake five to ten minutes later having a a cup of tea and and a home-baked cookie in in our uh, day hospital at the moment and uh, then be going home with their partner or support person an hour later that's when the really interesting stuff starts. So we've yeah. got the mature eggs. That morning, ideally, the, the partner would have produced a sperm specimen via masturbation. Yeah. If that partner doesn't have a lot of sperm or there are other male factor issues, he may have undergone a testicular biopsy. That can be done under local anaesthetic awake. It can also be done under general anaesthetic. And I think you're sort of getting the feel for it really is individualised. It's really on a case-by-case basis, you know, what do you want? What suits you? What have you experienced in the past? What do you not want? What Mm. have you read on social media and you're worried about? And so we really take that individual perspective into consideration. We also have a lot of men who are 
in FIFO, so they fly in, they fly out, they're not always here, they don't like the idea of coming into the clinic. And so some of those partners would have maybe frozen sperm with us prior. Yeah. And then we do have the option of using the frozen sperm. And yes, the pregnancy rates are exactly the same, whether we use the frozen sperm or the fresh sperm. So there's just so many options available for couples, even if one partner is not here or absent. Fertilisation then takes place that afternoon. So the lab will assess how many of the eggs are mature and developmentally normal. We will assess the quality of the fresh or the frozen sperm. We will then look at how are we going to utilise the sperm and what's our best chance of getting fertilisation for this particular couple. And in some cases, of course, it might be a, a single woman or a same-sex female couple coming through and they might decide to utilise donor sperm and that might be clinic rec recruited or anonymous donor sperm or it might actually be a known donor. Mm -hmm. And we have a very large donor program, both for donor eggs and donor sperm down here in Tasmania. So there's a lot of choice and a lot of options available. The two ways of fertilising the eggs are either what we call standard IVF. That's where we place one egg in a Petri dish with 100,000 sperm and then it's game on. The sperm have to swim to the egg and fertilise the egg. And it's really important at this point to realise that it's the egg that chooses the sperm. So if you place an egg with less than 100,000 sperm in a Petri dish, the egg will go on strike and it will not choose the sperm because you haven't given the egg enough choice. That's wow. why That's <laughs> why men make so much sperm, to give that egg a lot of choice. That's fascinating. It all makes sense when you think about it. It all makes sense. Yeah. So you want at least 100,000 sperm. So if you can't fulfil those criteria, then your next step really is to look at ICSI or intracytoplasmic sperm injection, ICSI. And what you're doing there is rather than the egg choosing the sperm, because it's not going to do it, because there's not enough good sperm to choose from, mm -hmm. the scientist will then take over. Or right. in the future, maybe artificial intelligence yes. will take over. And that's a whole other topic that I know, Renee, you're going to explore. Yeah. But ultimately, we look at the moment the scientist who is highly, highly trained will look down the microscope and assess the sperm. So we want a sperm that's good looking. We don't want a big head, a small head known as a pinhead. We don't want double heads. We don't want abnormally shaped sperm. We want a sperm with a normal size head that looks healthy. We want it to be moving, so we want it to be motile. We want it not to be swimming in circles. We want it to be swimming in a straight line. And this, the, the scientists are very, very good at picking the best-looking sperm, the best-functioning sperm, I should say. I'm very keen to understand about the sperm because, mm. okay, so double-headed sperm, swimming in circles, why does that happen? What's going on there? Like, obviously. We've we've done the research around that. What what is the reason for that? Yes, and it is quite fascinating, and it can actually be quite scary. But human males do make a lot of abnormally shaped sperm, and it's something we're seeing in all male species. So also in animal species, we're seeing that sperm quality is on the decline, and the obvious one is environmental factors, pollution. Mm -hmm growth hormone and antibiotics in food sources, lack of exercise, obesity. But pollution is the really big one. So I sometimes see men who are really quite healthy and they don't smoke and they don't have much alcohol and they exercise and yet they have quite a high degree of abnormally shaped sperm, uh, also known as abnormal sperm morphology. Mm. And the thing again is the egg will not choose the sperm that are abnormally shaped. Patients often ask me, oh, does this mean my chance of having a baby with an abnormality is increased? And if your genetic profile screening is low risk, then no, it does not increase your risk of a baby with an abnormality. The problem is that the egg is not interested. The egg is mm -hmm. not interested in a sperm that doesn't look quite right. Wow. Again, it makes sense because our bodies biologically, we want a healthy baby yeah. that's going to survive 
being born and that's going to live and become an adult and reproduce. You know, when you think yes. of it in evolution, evolution. Terms, it completely yeah. makes sense. Yeah. So we don't want to choose the abnormal sperm either. So the scientists will look under the microscope and pick out the, the best ones, the most fertile ones, and it doesn't matter how many abnormally shaped sperm a man has, we usually find a good one, except in smokers. Okay. In some male smokers who smoke quite heavily, and everyone's definition of heavy smoking is different, I found. But right. If you're smoking more than 15 cigarettes a day, that's heavy. Yeah. And I know a lot of people out there will go, oh my goodness, I thought that was a light smoker, but it's not, it's heavy. And what it really means that sometimes the, the lab will ring me and they'll go, oh my goodness, I just can't, we just can't find a normal sperm. And so that's why we're very unkeen to do IVF on smoking couples. Wow. Very, very unkeen to do IVF on smoking couples. So because, it, sorry, yeah, because, because I would just not going to find yeah. a good sperm despite all the expertise of the scientists and, and the artificial intelligence we're using in the lab. You know, the message I'm going to get is there's no good sperm here. So mm. if you're going to do IVF, stop smoking. Sorry, I just had to put that plug in. No, absolutely. And I can imagine, you know, yes. given the timeline, you know, if you've gone and like done a procedure of egg retrieval, I would imagine the clock starts ticking, right? Exactly. And so, so retrieve early in the morning. So yeah. this morning, for instance, we've done all our retrievals starting at 6am. We get all the eggs safely into the lab and then all the fertilisation is happening now, sort of yeah. know, midday onwards. And that's when we're trying to get the egg and the sperm together. Once we've done the insemination of, of the sperm with the egg or the intracytoplasmic sperm injection, the ICSI on the egg, then we have to wait for 18 hours mm -hmm. to see whether fertilisation has occurred. So okay. then our work is done and we just have the fertilised egg in the closed embryoscope or incubator system we don't touch them. It's at 37.2 degrees, which incidentally is meant to be our core temperature. So we're trying to mimic what mm -hmm. would be happening in the woman's fallopian tube at this stage. Mm. That's what we're doing. Everything we're doing in the labs, we're trying to mimic what would happen in nature. Can we do it as well as nature? Not quite yet. Are we getting close? Absolutely. We're getting really close. And and as I said at the beginning, and I'll, you know, I'll repeat myself, the magic happens in the lab. You know, the better your lab is, the the more up-to-date the technology, the higher the chance of pregnancy for you as the patient. So it's really important to not just choose your doctor. And obviously you want a fertility specialist who can talk to you and you feel comfortable to ring them and ask them questions. That's just so important. But you also want to know that they're attached to a really good lab. And that's something that often people forget because the lab's yeah. kind of there in the background behind a suction sealed door and no one goes in for obvious reasons because we don't want to disturb the little embryos and we certainly don't want to disturb our scientists when they're hard at work. But the lab is such a big part of it, and I, I think you're going to be talking more about that um, soon, Renee, because that's a really big topic in itself. Yeah. So the next morning, I was oh, sorry, say, I, I have to, I have to ask you a really dorky question because when I used to work in the lab and I was, you know, doing what I used to call my hail mary experiments, where it's like, oh my god, please just work. This is just going to be amazing if it does. <laughs> yes. And so I worked a lot with E. coli and yeast and mammalian cells and things like that. And I would talk to myself. Yes. <laughs> I would be like, please be good to me. Please be good to me. And we would we would put like really lovely music in the background, We're like grow, please grow. Absolutely. You know, and we know that we know that works from plants. There's no doubt yes. that plants that are surrounded by especially classical music. So uh, my question are, are is do happy. you play music in the lab, Manuela? Now, I think that's a secret. I'm not sure oh! that I'm allowed to divulge lab <laughs> secrets, but what I can tell you is that every lab have their own specific culture medium. Okay, that yes. That eggs and sperm in, and every lab have their own way of doing things. Mm -hmm. And ideally what you want in a lab is a team that is happy and a team that is working well together. And I'm very fortunate to be working with a lab like that. 
So okay. and every lab has their little secrets and I think you're going to be talking to our scientists, one of our scientists <laughs> in the future. I am. We'll divulge that for you. I don't want to, don't want to tread on any toes. <laughs> and then the next morning, so 18 hours later, that's when we do what we call our first fertilization check and it's really important because at that point we can see whether or not an egg has fertilized Mm -hmm. and whether it's fertilized normally Mm, Um, okay okay because what does that mean well the ultimate test of egg quality and sperm quality is whether they fertilize so as much as you can tell when you're freezing eggs for someone Yes, your eggs are mature, they look developmentally normal, they've frozen well until you go and use those eggs mm-hmm. and fertilise them with the sperm, you won't actually know the ultimate quality. Okay. And that's really important. That's a really important message to get out there. But we want to make sure that the female and male genetic material have appropriately connected and merged and there's something called a pronucleus and we want to see that there are two pronuclei. Now, if that early genetic development hasn't happened, we will give the egg a little bit more time, a bit like a preppy who's, you know, some of them learn reading in the first term and some of them learn yeah. reading in the third term and yeah. most of them catch up. But if they haven't caught up by the end of prep, then maybe they're going to repeat prep, okay? Yeah. So it's a little bit like that in the lab as well. Yeah, We might give them a little bit more time and see if there's a late fertilisation. But generally speaking, the majority of healthy, developmentally normal eggs and sperm, will f- we will see at 18 hours that fertilisation has occurred. And we will then call the patient and say, hey, good news, you had this many eggs collected and this many have fertilised normally and now we're going to keep growing them for five days until you reach a mature day five embryo, also known as a blastocyst. Now, previously we were sometimes developing embryos only to day two or three, also known as the cleavage stage, but we now find that if we take them all the way through to day five, what we end up with on day five is has a much higher chance for pregnancy than if okay. we transfer on day two or three. Now, it is the majority of labs around the world in the Western world will be doing day five transfers. Mm-hmm. And that's also the day that we have the option of freezing the embryos if we don't want to transfer fresh. It's also the day that we can then take a few cells off safely and do pre-implantation genetic screening and testing. Uh, and so it's a really good day to make decisions, whereas yeah. it's a little bit more difficult and in some cases not possible to do that on day two or three. Right. And during that five-day development, they're in the closed incubator system, which is is has been such a revolution having this closed incubator system where the embryos aren't being touched by humans. We're watching them through the the microscope and we can see what's going on, but we're not touching them, we're not changing that temperature of 37.2 degrees we're just letting them do their thing mm. um, and we have found since that in the in the last five to ten years again the pregnancy rates have really shot up I just want to ask and like kind of touch on that genetic testing is that something that one is that a standard practice or two if it's not how many people kind of engage in that so that that's a good a good question it is not standard IVF so having genetic testing on your embryos or having pre-implantation genetic testing also known as PGT on your embryos is not standard practice it's not standard IVF and hence you have to pay for it right so you will not get any Medicare support there are two groups of people who decide to do genetic testing on their embryos and the percentage of patients is probably between 10 to 20 percent in most mm-hmm. in most labs at the moment and the two groups are either patients who haven't conceived with standard IVF mm-hmm. and we really want to see well what's going on with your embryos because they look nice right but are they actually carrying a subtle genetic error that's random is it age related is it just random? Um, why is this going on? Mm-hmm. So we do it to get a little bit of more information. Information is important. It may not change the outcome, but I think we all hate living with uncertainty. And if we can try and understand why maybe IVF hasn't worked within the first three cycles, because that most of our patients are pregnant in the first three cycles, if we can understand why some couples aren't getting pregnant in that sort of time range, 
then that's a very helpful thing. The second group of patients that would be doing pre-implantation genetic testing are patients who have a very clear indication they're either carrying a genetic error themselves, Mm -hmm. like cystic fibrosis, and they don't want to pass it on, or they've had recurrent miscarriage. And during the investigation of recurrent miscarriage, we have actually found that a lot of the pregnancy tissue that miscarried did carry genetic errors. Right. So even though mum and dad themselves are genetically normal, as far as we can tell, when we're checking the pregnancy tissue that miscarried, we're finding genetic errors. Mm -hmm. And so that makes us think, well, is this happening to all of the embryos Mm. or have they just had a lot of bad luck? It's not something we tend to do after one or two miscarriages because, unfortunately, having one, two, even three miscarriages is very common. And I'm very careful not to use the word normal Yeah, because it's devastating for a lot of our patients when they have a miscarriage. But the reality is that you can have three miscarriages, we can find nothing wrong, and then you can go away and have a healthy baby. Mm. So so we also don't want to over-treat people and so it's important, again, this is another take-home message for, for people listening out there, that if you've had three miscarriages in a row, please come along and let us do all the tests and see what's going on. But also understand that it might just be that you've been unlucky. And I'm putting yeah. that in inverted commas for yeah. our, for our yeah. audience. I'm being very careful. No, but it's like an accident. It's something bad that happens and you have no control over Mm. But the couples who have, who have had three or more miscarriages, as you can imagine, Renee, are, you know, it's devastating. devastating and yeah. they come to us and they say, look, we need you to do something. We want to minimise the risk of another miscarriage. So they're really good candidates also for having genetic screening of their embryos. Okay. But it's well, definitely not standard. Yeah. Uh, it adds to your cost base. There is now Medicare funding, which is fantastic for just over 12 months now for the couples that have a known genetic error. Right. are doing the right thing by their family and by their offspring and also by society. You know, they're trying to not pass on the unhealthy genetic mutation. They're trying to minimise the risk of a child with a health condition, which will burden not only the child and their family, but all of us really when you Mm. look at it as a big picture issue and so those couples are now getting medicare support for the genetic testing component and for the embryo biopsy and and we are just us in the ivf field are really delighted that um that the government has has finally put that in place because Mm. um most of these couples come from quite devastating family history backgrounds yeah. because this genetic mutation has sort of run through the generations and they're trying really hard to do the right thing and not pass it on. Mm, yeah, I grew up with a family where all three children had cystic fibrosis. And exactly, and that would be a, a classic example. Yeah, it was and devastating. If mum and dad are both cystic fibrosis carriers, then the chance of that couple having a baby with cystic fibrosis is one in four. Mm. But what happens is it's not necessarily one in four. So the family you've just referred to, three babies each time it was the one in four. So yeah. three affected individuals that are going to need lifelong medical care and intervention. Mm-hmm. And just incidentally, one of the big issues with cystic fibrosis is that those boys and girls, when they grow up to be young adults, tend to be infertile. Yes. Not yes. 100%, but they, they, you know, they, we do see them in our clinic as well. Yeah. So, uh, and, and that brings me to the next thing, which is that's why all our patients are encouraged and almost strongly pushed to please go and have the triple genetic screen for cystic fibrosis, spinal muscular atrophy and fragile X and to have that done before you get pregnant because Mm -hmm. one in 20 of us, Renee, are cystic fibrosis carriers. That's okay as long as our partner Partner. is a carrier, okay? So very important to get that testing done and to get it done before you get pregnant. Yes, we can test you in pregnancy. Probably not the time to find out that you're a carrier and have all that anxiety. Let's Mm -hmm. do it before you're pregnant. And at the moment, again, no Medicare rebate. You know, cost is coming a lot into this discussion, isn't it, Renee? Yeah. 
Um, but at the moment, no Medicare rebate, but my understanding is that at the end of 2023, there will be a Medicare rebate. And really, mm-hmm. all our listeners, once that Medicare rebate is there, there's no excuse to not have it done. Yeah. And as you say, it's peace of mind. Like for someone like myself who grew up with a family, and unfortunately, two of the children died. Mm. Um, and that's, very- of course, the other big aspect with cystic fibrosis is that a lot of the children do not make it to um, yeah. to young adulthood. Yeah. Yeah. And um, that was always something that's actually one of the reasons why I became a scientist, because I, one day I wanted to be able to be part of something that hopefully would change lives. So it's kind of affected me as a child (laughs) now into my adulthood as well. Uh, Absolutely. No, no, it would. And it is one of the reasons why I really push um, my patients to go and do that screening test despite the cost. Mm. When you think about all the things we spend money on and we look back and we regret that we spent the money on it, uh, this is probably the one genetic test that you will never regret Mm. having done if only for peace of mind and of course at the moment gene therapy is not in clinical practice so at the moment our genetic profile doesn't change so if you do the test now and you have a baby in 10 years um that's okay you've done the test and you knew that you were low risk and i think this might be a timely uh point as well just to remind everyone that with genetic testing we can never tell you that you are genetically perfect Humans are not genetically perfect. We all carry five to ten gene mutations. Mm-hmm. What we want to make sure is that you're not carrying any of the dangerous ones and that you're not carrying a gene mutation that your partner also carries. So you're not overlapping with the same one. Yeah. And that could sort of be a whole other podcast. That is a whole yeah. other <laughs> um, That is a so, whole other one. So when I give people results, I say to them, Oh, good news, you are low risk yes. for being a carrier for example, cystic fibrosis, and they go, oh, oh, um, I'm low risk. I'm like, yes, you're low risk. We couldn't find a mutation. That doesn't mean you don't have other mutations. It doesn't mean your pregnancy is guaranteed to be healthy. You are put into a low risk group, and that's as good as it gets with genetic testing. Yeah, and really important to understand that because I do have couples who want to test for everything, and Mm. that's fine. That's very valid but we can never give someone 100% guarantee. So once you're pregnant, of course, you will then also have testing for the pregnancy, which most women do in the Western world. Yeah. And so, okay, so eggs being fertilised in the lab, what happens next? We, You know, the patient so gets gone the call. To day five, so yeah. you've got the call on day one in the olden days you know, five years ago, and IVF, that's the olden days. You know, in the olden days, you might have had an update every day from the lab, but you know what was happening? They were opening the incubator and looking inside, oh, looking at what wow. was going on, and we talked about that temperature fluctuation yes. serving the embryos, so that's yeah. what you know nowadays, and the good labs will not do that. So a good lab will not give you a daily update, Renee. A good lab will give you the fertilisation check, the first mm-hmm. day after fertilisation or 18 hours down the track, and then the next lot of information will come on day five. Yeah. Because remember, we're leaving those little embryos to do their own little thing. Yes, we can check on them remotely without disturbing them, but what we see on day two and three gives us no real indication of what we're going to end up with on day five. Right, right. Because it's the like, numbers change, the development yeah. change. Sometimes you have some late bloomers and some embryos that are a little bit faster than we thought. And what we really want to see is not only the development, because that is important, mm. and our AI especially take the development, the rate of development into account, but ultimately we would like to see what does it look like on day five, and then we look back at the developmental history and take that into account as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's like cooking a souffle. Don't open the oven no. Before the time is up, like just Absolutely. let it go, otherwise it's going to flop. <laughs> Absolutely. And and if you feel like you need to open the oven, then maybe you shouldn't be cooking the souffle. This is true. Um, so on day five, on day five, the patient will come in for a fresh embryo transfer if she's feeling well enough, if she's taken her medications that we've prescribed her, usually a progesterone gel uh, inserted vaginally to get the lining ready for the transfer, the lining of the uterus 
ready for the transfer. Some patients might on that day not be available. They've flown interstate for work. That's okay. We'll freeze the embryos on day five. But most of our patients, probably 80% of patients will come in and have a fresh embryo transfer, which incidentally is very similar to having a pap smear, which is now known as a CST or cervical screening test. And so anyone who's had a a pap smear or a CST in the past and they find it relatively straightforward will find the embryo transfer very straightforward. It can be done under an anaesthetic. That's a little bit unusual. Some patients are very anxious and they might have a Valium, five milligrams of Valium an hour prior just to take the edge off things. Again, it's really on a case-by-case basis yeah. and that's something you would have discussed with your fertility specialist and your IVF nurses prior to the day. So you come in, you kind of know what's going to happen. It's a really exciting day. Often the patients come in with their partners or we get the partners on FaceTime. We'll do a little ultrasound transabdominally and see what position is the uterus in. Um, Then we'll also look up on the TV screen, which is linked to our microscope, and we'll have a look at the patient's identity information, make sure it's the correct patient, the correct Mm. address, the correct date of birth for very obvious reasons, no room for error here. Um, And then we'll show them the embryo that we are transferring, which really on day five looks like a beautiful round block. Okay, Okay. it it really looks like an amorphous substance, but in actual fact, it's made up of 200 plus little cells um, and we will show the patient that embryo. And then it's, again, very similar to having a pap smear, a little speculum is inserted into the vagina. We usually use the very small speculums. There's a, a gentle wash with sterile saline of the cervix. And then we will pass a very finely molded little plastic catheter into the uterine canal into the lower bit of the uterus and we will then feed through the actual embryo in a separate what we call an inner catheter and all of that we're watching on ultrasound while it's happening we're watching it live Mm -hmm. now the embryo transfer is very important that's where it comes together is that the critical step like if we had to pick something this is the critical one it, it is the critical step in the sense that it's all the lab work all the patient work, all the medications she took, all the fertility specialist input with retrieving the eggs, it all comes together in that moment. Mm -hmm. And that's why, Renee, if you're not feeling well on your day of embryo transfer, maybe you're better off calling and saying, you know what, I I just don't feel quite, quite good today. You know, definitely if we have a patient, obviously with the pandemic, occasionally we'll have someone who calls up and says, oh, I've actually tested positive this morning yeah don't come in for your transfer we'll freeze your little embryo until you're better yeah you know if there's anything else going on um, sometimes you're better off for us to just freeze the embryo it is an important step it everything's important but it also needs to be easy so if it's easy for you the patient if it's easy for me the fertility specialist then the chance of pregnancy is good yeah. And so to make it easy, we want people to be relaxed. We want them to have had breakfast. We want them to have not an empty bladder. We want them to be well hydrated. Most of my patients know the drill and they walk in with their water bottle. Yeah. Because they know I might <laughs> I might do the ultrasound and go, oh, can you drink like another 100 mils? I just need to fill this bladder a little bit more for you. What is so, it about the bladder that needs, like, what's, yeah, what's the, that all the, about, Manuela? <laughs> so, so the uterus is cushioned between the bladder at the front yeah. and the bowel or the rectum at the back. Okay. So so what happens with the bladder and the rectum influences what's going on with the uterus. So okay. if you have a really empty bladder, your uterus will collapse forward over the bladder and turn into an, a C-shape. And that means that when we're going in with the little catheter, we have to go around the C bend Uh to get into your uterine cavity. And I can tell you, you will feel that in not a good way. Wow. And if if you start experiencing discomfort, you're more likely to feel faint. And Uh if you feel faint and actually do faint, that's not a pleasant experience. Remember what I said to you before? It needs to be easy. It's walk in, walk out. It's meant to be a happy occasion. You're seeing your little beautiful embryo up on the screen. We'll email you a photo of your embryo if you would like, or you could take some photos. It's meant to be a really good, positive 
experience. So we want people feeling well. If your bladder is nice and full, it pushes your uterus into a straight position, mm-hmm. which means when we're passing the little catheter in, we can just go straight into the uterus. We're not going around any bends or curves, and the chances are you're not even going to feel it. Now, wow. that okay. is true for 90% of women, mm-hmm. <laughs> okay? So 10% of women, their uterus doesn't collapse forward. It collapses backwards, also known as retroversion. Not a problem, doesn't impact the chance of pregnancy, but those women probably don't need the really full bladder. Okay. Okay. But those women out there, you know who you are. Certainly, because my, <laughs> my patient is you know who you are because I've told you you're one of the lucky ones that doesn't need a full bladder. But you know what? It's much easier to send someone out to empty their bladder than it is to fill a bladder. So yeah. I like my patients to come in with a, with a half full bladder, just comfortable, I say to them. You can fill your bladder, but you don't feel like you need to go to the toilet anytime soon. Yeah, That's really a really good way to start off. And then we'll empty or fill as required. So the embryo transfer, very important, but also I want you to be relaxed. I'm certainly relaxed. I always make sure I've had breakfast before I go and do my egg retrievals and I definitely make sure I've had something to eat before I go and do my list of embryo transfers because I want to be feeling good as well. Mm. Uh, And then, of course, the scientists will bring your little embryo in out of the incubator at the very last moment when we're all set up and we're all ready to go. Because remember, it's been in that 37.2 degrees yeah. culture medium. Yeah. And we're putting it inside the uterus also at 37.2 degrees. Mm. So really okay. important, but also, you know, when I'm doing embryo transfers, I, I want everything to be perfect, but I also don't want my patient to be stressed. If yeah. you're feeling really stressed out, it's probably better you had a bit of Valium. Yeah. Or maybe we should do this on another day. And yeah. so the remaining embryos, then we would freeze. And so the chance of pregnancy with a fresh transfer on average is one in three for most Mm -hmm. patients and it's higher for women under 35 and it's lower for women under 40, but generally that's sort of a rough ballpark figure. Again, it's really individualised on a case-by-case basis. Mm. And then 10 days later we will do a pregnancy test and if that blood pregnancy test is positive, we'll sort of take it from there and you, you then sort of graduate into the early pregnancy group and we take you through to the six-week pregnancy ultrasound where we see the heartbeat and then we refer you off to your pregnancy care team. If you're not pregnant, then you would come back the next month if you're feeling up to it and we would actually transfer back your frozen embryo. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we thaw and warm the embryo before it is transferred back into your uterus and we make sure that it's viable and that it looks just as healthy and good as it did when we froze it. And so over 90% of embryos will survive the warming process. 5 to 10% won't. And of those 5 to 10% that come out and they're not quite right, we will reassess and see whether we want to transfer this embryo. And if it doesn't survive and it's not good enough to transfer, it is sad, but at the end of the day, we want to transfer an embryo that has a good chance of pregnancy. We don't mm. want to waste your time and your yep. energy we really want to make sure you're you're walking out of that room and your chance of pregnancy is good. Yeah. A couple of questions that I have. After the embryo transfer, is there a recommendation or suggestion around what the woman should do for the rest of the day? Is it bed rest for the rest of the day or is it get on, you know, just kind of get on with life as you normally would Or are there things that you would kind of say, "Mm, maybe skip that for the first 24 hours and then you can tap back into, you know, everyday life Mm. thereafter? And and that's another really good question, Renee. You you ask me lots of things. (laughs) This is another one of my, I have many pet topics, as you can tell. This is another one of my pet topics. So it is very clear from all the studies that if you, go about your normal day-to-day activities, your pregnancy rate will be better than if you rest in bed for the next few days. And it's counterintuitive. You know, I have patients all the time who say, oh, I want to, you've just done the transfer, I'm feeling great, I want to just sit here for another half hour and put my legs up in the air. 
And I say to them, look, the problem with that is that the studies tell me that if you do that, your chance of pregnancy is less than if you get up now and walk out and go back to work, go home, do what it is you were going to do for the rest of the day. Yeah. So we like to mobilise our patients early. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know a lot of patients find that really difficult. They really want to go home and go to bed. And I say, well... If you really have to, that's fine, but the evidence just does not support that approach. Is there anything wrong with taking the day off and pottering around in your garden um, or going to a farmer's market or maybe walking home and then watching a movie with your dog? You know, of course there's nothing wrong with that, but going home with strict bed rest is an absolute no-no. Okay. Absolutely. Why? Not. Why is that? Lots is, of studies. Is that like an like? I'm I'm going to throw something out there. Is it like an evolutionary thing where it's almost like, um, you know, the embryo is like, oh god, we've gone into a kind of sedate state now. Are you fit to kind of grow this baby? Does that make sense? Exactly, because we do know from a fertility point of view that low level exercise is really important. So our couple's trying to get pregnant, we say 30 minutes of moderate exercise two to three times a week. Now, Renee, it's very interesting to see what people's idea of moderate exercise is. I have patients who think that going to the gym for two hours after work every day is normal, and I'm telling listeners out there it's not normal. No. you will not be as fertile as someone who is doing 30 minutes of moderate exercise three times a week, like power walking, gentle jogging, swimming, yoga, walking your dog. That That's what I'm talking about, mm-hmm. moderate exercise, things that bring you pleasure but also things that don't necessarily raise your heartbeat more than 120 beats per minute. Mm-hmm. Okay, and a lot of my patients find that really difficult. They're very intense uh, exercises for a variety of reasons. And so any of my patients who are elite athletes, we really wait until their competitive sort of season is over before we do something with them because there's just no point. Their body is just not going to respond. So following on from that, that's probably part of the reason why you should mobilise after an embryo transfer. And when you think about it, if you're trying to conceive naturally when you have sex, do you then stay in bed for three days afterwards? No. Most people people get on with it. (laughs) Okay, most people get on with it. Um, and I mean, that's a whole nother topic, but, um, but, but when you think about it, we're trying to mimic what would happen in real life. And right. In real life, you would not stay in bed for three days or even 24 hours, uh, when you're trying to conceive. I mean, I don't know, maybe some people do, but, but most, most people don't. So early mobilization, again, when you think about it in biological terms, Renee, when you mobilize, you're pushing blood through your system. You're pushing it to all your vital organs like your brain. Now, interestingly, the ovaries aren't considered a vital organ. So if you're not mobilising, given that your ovaries are not, a, a, biologically speaking, everyone, please yeah. don't, send, send, me hate mail. <laughs> don't send us the hate mail. <laughs> no, they're, they're important, the ovaries, don't get me wrong. But in terms of the blood supply, if you're exercising in the gym for two hours after work, mm-hmm. most of your blood supply is going to be channeled into your muscles away from your ovaries and your uterus. So when you've just had an embryo transfer, if you're mobilising normally, that's great. Your ovaries and your uterus are getting the normal blood supply they normally would be. But if you're immobilised and you're not pushing blood around your body, mm-hmm. then where is that blood going to go? It's going to go to your brain because we all agree brain's really important. It's going to go to your heart and it's also going to go to your peripheries. Um, depending on your skin temperature. So, and if you're under a doona and you're really warm and you're a bit vasodilated, then obviously a lot of blood is going to go to your skin. Where's it not going? It's not going to your uterus and your ovaries. So when you think about it like that, it makes sense. Totally makes sense. But equally, you know, I have had patients who told me, oh, this afternoon after my embryo transfer, I've got my first personal training session. Okay, is is it a great time to start something brand new when you've just had an embryo transfer? No, we want you to do what your body is used to. Yeah. So maybe don't introduce anything new into your diet or your lifestyle 
in that 10 days between the embryo transfer and the blood test. Just because if you start a new medication, if you go onto a new diet, if you do a new exercise regime, we don't know how you're going to react to it. And if you have a bad reaction to it, um, again, it's going to take away from what's potentially going on in your uterus. So I don't encourage people to do a heavy workout on mm. the day of their embryo transfer. And if they normally would be going to the gym that day, I say, you know what, maybe maybe you could defer it for the next few days while this little one is trying to attach an implant into your uterus mm. because that happens in the 48 hours after the embryo transfer. A lot of it's common sense. You know, sometimes I just say to my patients, look, if you were 12 weeks pregnant now, would you do this? Yeah. And if the answer is no, well, then don't do it after an embryo transfer. Yeah. That's probably the easiest way to think about it. Yeah, I agree. It is. It is. It does come down to kind of, you know, common sense. Um. Manuela, we're not going to do a rapid fire because we did that in the last episode. We did. Typically, (laughs) typically, I'm still reading the same book, Renee. So, yeah, so I can't ping you on that one. That's right. I think I just wanted to wrap up with just like a kind of overall, and it was probably something that I didn't ask in the previous episode. I would love to know, because, you know, obviously IVF is a wonderful journey for a lot of people and they get a beautiful, healthy baby by the end of it. But are there any potential side effects to IVF? I I think that's um, another excellent question and a good time to also mention that not everyone who does IVF will walk home with a baby. Yes. It's the harsh, harsh reality So if you've been told you may need IVF and you're thinking about it and you think you're going to do IVF, do it while you're young enough to do it, Mm -hmm. okay, because what you don't want is to look back and regret. I think if you do IVF when you're young enough to do it, even if you don't get what you want, at least you know you did what you could. Mm -hmm. And it is important to understand that not everyone who does IVF will walk home with a baby, and but we try our best if you come to us in a timely manner. Mm. The the other um, bit of that question, I have just forgotten, Renee, so you'll have um, to, any, sorry. Any potential side effects? You know, we've oh, spoken yes, about, you. Um, yeah, you know. Very important. And IVF has obviously been around now since um, the early 70s. I mean, the first IVF baby was born in 1978, Louise Brown, who incidentally has three children of her own, all not IVF conceived, which is great news. And so we're now seeing that third generation. So the IVF mums from the 70s and 80s who are now um, getting on in years are living the same amount of time as the women who had babies naturally in the 70s and 80s. So having had IVF yourself does not shorten your lifespan. Mm -hmm. You have the same health outcomes. There were a lot of studies done a fairly long time ago now looking at the cancer risk or whether there was a cancer risk with IVF because of the short-term high dose hormones that they were using right so in the in the olden days and i am talking 70s and 80s now there were quite high dose hormones which were quite impure and the women who took the hormones back then are living exactly they have the same life expectancy as as the women who didn't take those hormones so that's great news yeah but since then the hormone doses have come down it's now recombinant medication to a large extent meaning it's very pure, which allows us to use minimal required doses. And the hormone use is very short term. So when you're doing IVF in a typical fresh egg collection cycle, you're on IVF medications, the injections for about 10 to 12 days. Mm -hmm. When you're pregnant, you're on your high internal pregnancy hormones for nine months. Mm. So it's very short term targeted hormonal treatment. And the good news is that all the studies have shown that there is no increased risk of hormonally-based tumours like breast cancer, ovarian cancer, when you do IVF. Because it's a common question we get and it's a fair question. No one wants to put drugs into their body if they don't need it, and especially not if it's going to cause a problem. Mm. But, But doing IVF is no more risky than being on the pill. Can you get blood clots? Can you get side effects from the medication? Of course you can, just like you can with being on the pill or hormone replacement therapy, mm-hmm. and it is on a case-by-case basis. But someone who can't tolerate IVF medication for whatever medical reason probably is not going to be able to tolerate a pregnancy. 
Right. Okay. So because because it's like a pseudo pregnancy state when you're doing IVF, and if you can't tolerate that for whatever reason, yeah, um, then we've really got to start having the discussion. And you might need a pre-pregnancy consult with your obstetrician. How am I going to go in pregnancy? So the the good news is that IVF is considered safe, and statistically speaking, your chance of dying from IVF, and this is when you look at all the stats in the Western world is one in half a million. Okay. Okay, and they are women who either have some underlying metabolic issue and have a very strong reaction to the IVF medication uh, and also women who are at risk of ovarian hyperstimulation. So 1% to 2% of people doing IVF will experience ovarian hyperstimulation either because they're on high-dose IVF medication, which is now less and less common, fortunately, or because despite the very low doses we've put them on, they still have this exaggerated ovarian response and they make lots and lots of eggs. You'll remember at the beginning of the episode we talked about that that ideal sweet spot between 5 to 12 eggs seems to be the ideal range. Mm-hmm. And so these women will make more than that. Um, and ovarian hyperstimulation, if it's not managed well mm-hmm. and if it's not managed in a timely manner, can lead to some very serious complications, which fortunately most of our patients, we follow them up and if there's a problem they'll call us and we'll get onto it really, really quickly. Mm -hmm. And so that's the message out there as well, Renee, for our listeners is that if you have done IVF and you're experiencing a side effect that that hasn't been discussed with you or you, you, you can't remember reading about this, call the clinic, call your fertility specialist, tell them. Because if we don't hear from you, we do tend to assume you're fine. Yeah. So, so please, we rely on you to, to let us know. But any patient we deem high risk, we will follow up automatically on a daily basis. Um, and so if you were one of those, so the, so the, the mortality from IVF is one in half a million which is very low risk, compare that to the chance of dying as a result of being pregnant or giving birth. In the Western world, the chance of maternal mortality is 1 in 10,000. Okay, so it's quite dangerous to be pregnant and have a baby, but most a lot of women do it and most women are absolutely fine. Um, and, you know, not wanting to end on a negative note, but I think it's really important to understand that everything we do in life has risks. And ideally when you're doing something medical, you want someone to be guiding you through it who is experienced, who you have a good rapport with, and who you can contact if there's a problem. Mm, absolutely. That, that's, that's the kind of IVF team or medical team that you want around you. And if you're not getting that, then maybe you need to go and have a second opinion. Um, because most complications in IVF, they're rare, fortunately, but when they do happen, they can be managed as long as they're managed in a very timely manner. I completely agree. I think it's any with anything in your life, if you're entering into kind of a new realm, there's one thing that you need to always invest in. And I'm a firm believer of as my life kind of philosophy is always have people around you who know more than you because exactly. they're exactly. able you to need that guide support you. Team. Yep. You need that support team. And I know all my patients are very knowledgeable. You know, Dr. Google's out there, social media's <laughs> out there. And, and everyone, you know, there's a lot of information out there and that's fine. But you also need to be able to filter that medication and maybe that's where someone like me comes into it to help you filter that and see what's relevant to you and what isn't relevant. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Manuela, another episode which is just gold. Like, oh, I've never done the IVF journey, so I have learned so much and I think this is going to be such a valuable episode for people to listen to if they're contemplating IVF or if they're kind of at the beginning but still not like certain about what's about to happen next, I think that this is just going to be so, so well received. Do you have any final comments that you would like to touch on before we wrap up? Yeah, look, look, I, I think I do and, and um, it's really important to remember that IVF is common. Couples doing IVF or individuals doing IVF, uh, they don't want to be judged, they need support. And so by doing podcasts like this, we're getting the message out there of what's actually involved. Every prep classroom, Renee, has at least one or two children in it 
that are there as a result of IVF conception and or donor egg or sperm conception. This is very, very common. This is the new normal. Yeah. And so, you know, even if you're not doing IVF, it's inevitable that some of our listeners will know of someone who is doing IVF and be kind and be supportive, even if it's not your own journey. Oh, so beautifully said. Thank you for that. Okay, well, I'm going to say until next time because let's be honest. <laughs> We're going to do this again, <laughs> I'm definitely having you back. This is going to be great. But until then, thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. And if any of the listeners have got any questions or further comments around IVF, please feel free to reach out to either myself or Manuela. Did you want to let everyone know, obviously they would have heard from the introduction that you're at TAS IVF? Yes, I'm I'm at TAS IVF. We're doing a lot of teleconsulting. So even if you're not Tasmanian, we're very happy to talk to our patients on the mainland. But seriously, we're so lucky in Australia. There are a lot of very, very good IVF clinics. TAS IVF is associated with Virtus Health and there's some very good Virtus Health clinics all along the East Coast. But feel free to just reach out and talk to your local fertility specialists to see what what your needs are and, and make a fertility plan because that's what we should all be having. Thank you so much for that. Okay. All right, then. Have a lovely day. See you next Thank time. Thank you so much, Renee. Great questions again. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye. Bye. If you loved this episode, please hit the subscribe button and leave a review. If you know someone out there who would also love to listen to this episode, please hit the share button so they can benefit from it as well. Thank you for listening to The Science of Motherhood. We'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Science of Motherhood. If you would like to contact us, we are at ifillyourcup.com or you can DM us at ifillyourcup underscore via Instagram. You can find all of our services including our postpartum in-home care and our fill your freezer meal delivery service as well through both those channels. Thanks so much for listening.